0: The following talk was given at the Insight Meditation Center in Redwood City, California. Please visit our website at audiodharma.org. Good morning. So I was away last week teaching a retreat at Spirit Rock, and um, the, the retreat was a different kind of retreat. It, instead of just being all silent and sitting and walking, Instead, there was a lot more teaching, a lot more um, uh, sessions where we explored themes. And the theme of the week was the Four Noble Truths. I came away from the week with a renewed appreciation for how powerful it can be to really understand these teachings. And I came back and I looked on Audio Dharma, and it's been a year since I talked about the Four Noble Truths here, so <laughs> I thought. That's a good idea. <laughs> so I thought I would start the discussion today, you know, as we sometimes do here, and just kind of see how far I get and have questions and answers and then carry on, you know, as, as long as we, as we want to explore this topic. So um, I thought I'd start with a comic a friend sent me this. It's a Pearls Before Swine comic. I don't know if you're familiar with those. It's the you know, the little communities of mouse and pig and zebra and alligator. And Mouse is sitting at a desk and writing a letter. Mouse writes, Dear life, I'm writing you to express my dissatisfaction. <laughs> First, I didn't ask to be put here. You put me here. That started us off on a bad foot. Given that rocky start, I think you'd strive to be a good host. But no, you fill this place with unpleasant surprises. As if that's not enough, at some point I apparently cease to exist in a manner that is most likely shocking, painful, and tragic. Can you say rip-off? Please provide a refund. (laughs) and then pig walks up and mouse says where does one send one of these (laughs) so the Buddha noticed the same pattern the Buddha noticed this um, the way he put it was in looking around at life he noticed that there's birth, there's aging, there's death, and that all these things are, you know, kind of unpleasant. And he said that he noticed that himself being subject to birth, aging, and death, that he tried to find some kind of respite or relief or something from this kind of sense of struggle suffering, dissatisfaction, unpleasantness that happens in our lives. And he noticed that he was doing that by trying to kind of take refuge in things that also are subject to birth, aging, and death. He said, this doesn't seem too, too brilliant. So he um, decided to see if he could understand for himself, figure out what this problem of suffering is about. So that started him off on a quest. He left home and ordained and began practicing, began exploring various teachings of the day. He practiced, well, his, his home life had been one of a lot of ease and pleasantness. He describes his home life as, as being quite... Refined. He had several palaces that he stayed in and um, lots of flowers and attendants and things to make sure that he was never uncomfortable. And when he went off into exploring the various teachings of the day, the first teachers that he met taught um, deep concentration practice. And so he practiced those and mastered those and at the, after he mastered what these teachers taught, he said, you know, is this, is this all that you teach? And they said, yes, you know everything that I know. Basically, it's like, you know, sit down, go into very um, refined states of concentration, kind of put your body into a place where it's no longer feeling impinged on. So there's none of that bodily suffering going on. And then you come out of it. And he noticed that when he came out of it, he was still subject to all the bodily suffering, all of the mental struggles. He said, "This isn't what I'm looking for." So, he went off to look for other, other solutions, and other set of practices that were available at the day were severe ascetic practices. So he explored uh, starving himself and practicing not breathing as long as he could, and um, he got so emaciated and so ill that his, you know, he, he, it was said that he could, when he touched the, his belly, that he could feel his backbone. That's kind of a visceral feeling I, I have when I think of that, you know, how emaciated he was. And uh, he discovered that as he got so weak that it was really difficult to practice. He's like, this can't be the way either. So he nourished himself and he, um, Gained his strength back. and At one point he remembered a time when he was a child sitting under a tree watching his father. And actually it's not so clear how old he was, uh, apparently. I had thought it was pretty clear that he was young, but I'm taking a course right now where it's, you know, he could have been anywhere under 18. (laughs) So, you know, as a young man, let's say, um, he was watching his... Uh, father plow the fields in a kind of a ritual field, uh, a ritual planting. And in uh, sitting there under the tree and watching this, he kind of moved into a spontaneous state of relaxation and concentration together. And um, it occurred to him, he thought, I wonder if this is the way, I wonder if this is a clue, this kind of relaxed, concentration and, and he thought maybe this is, maybe this is the way he had a sense, this is the direction I should go um, now the kind of concentration that he remembered having fallen into was very similar to the kinds of concentration he was learning from his first two teachers but the, the differences um, I think in terms of his reflecting back on it is that and he'd been studying with those first two teachers with the understanding of, okay, the result of this practice of concentration is, is what we're aiming for. And he's like, no, that's not what we're aiming for. It, for me, that's not what I'm aiming for, at least. So, but in remembering back, he, um, he kind of understood that, that uh, those states of concentration might be the platform from which he could understand what he's looking for. So to take it a step further, essentially, than what his teachers had done. And so he um, he started. He sat down and moved into this the state of concentration. And instead of just using that as a, as a means to go deeper into concentration, he used it as a, a kind of a, a tool to turn his attention to what was happening in his mind and body. So to explore this question of suffering. Explore this question of dukkha. Using a concentrated mind. And this allowed him to penetrate and understand what the struggle is around dukkha. What the, what the issue is. And as he um, came out of meditation he um, he realized how profound his teaching his his understanding was and and it occurred to him maybe it's a good idea i should go around and teach this and he thought oh you know this is really subtle what i've discovered i don't i don't know if people are going to understand this people you know don't understand it it's just going to be vexing but the story goes that a a, a deity came down and encouraged him he says no no there are some people that will understand please teach and so he thought around about who might be able to understand and he thought of his five companions that had practiced the ascetic practices with him and he went to find them which I said it was a, a quite a long walk maybe you know a month or so for him to find them And there's more to this kind of unfolding of this story, but you know, when, he, when he, f- he met them, originally they were really skeptical because he, um, he had moved away from the, the strong ascetic practices. He'd kind of been the leader of this group of five ascetics, of six ascetics, him included, and they had been kind of aspiring to be as you know, dedicated to the ascetic practices as he was. And when he decided to eat food, it was like, this guy just isn't. He's fallen away from the true practice, so we're going to leave him. And so when, when uh, he, started, he walked up to them, they started talking among themselves. Well, there's that Gautama, you know, he's, he's not teaching, you know. I mean, he's not, he's not, you know, following the true path, so we'll ignore him. But they found they couldn't ignore him because his being was so radiant. And he walked up to them and, um, and uh, he basically told them, look, I found something you might be interested in knowing. <laughs> and at first they were really skeptical and he says, you know, I found the way. I found the truth. And they're skeptical. And he says, have you ever heard me speak like this before? And they said, no. And, and he said, well, you know, you might want to pay attention here. <laughs> and finally they decided they would listen to him. And he gave this teaching on the Four Noble Truths. The very first Teaching that he gave. Well, actually, it, it was the second teaching because there was somebody that he met on the road while he was walking to uh, to meet these five ascetics, and that person saw him and also saw how serene, how beautiful, how clear he was, and is is like, wow, you know, who are you anyway? What are you? Are you are you a god? And he said, no. And he said, are you a man? And he said, no, which is an interesting response. <laughs> and the uh, person said, well, what are you? And he said, I'm awake. I'm awake. And he said this in i oh, I'll read it to you. Let's see if I can find it in here. I am an all transcender and all knower, unsullied by all things, renouncing all, by cravings ceasing freed. And this I owe to my own wisdom. To whom should I concede it? I have no teacher, and my like ignis- exists nowhere in all the world with its gods, because I have no person for my counterpart. I am the teacher of the world, without peer, accomplished too. I am quite al- am I, and I alone am quite enlightened, quenched, whose fires are all extinct. I go to Kasi City now to set the wheel of the Dhamma in motion. In a blindfolded word, I go to beat the deathless drum. And the uh, person he was speaking to kind of looked at him perplexed and said, May it be so, and walked the other way. So he, um, I think, discovered perhaps that he needed to uh, offer the teaching in a more accessible way. <laughs> 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 so, his uh, discourse to the, to the five ascetics on the Four Noble Truths. So, um, the Four Noble Truths, in brief, are the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. So, these four truths, I mean, they sound pretty simple, and I know most of you have heard these many times. And yet the, um, the power of these is quite profound. Um, everything that the Buddha taught everything he taught, fits within this framework. So it's a really helpful framework to get familiar with because it kind of gives you a structure on which to understand everything that the Buddha taught. So one of the first things to kind of recognize about these truths, the truth of suffering, the truth of the cause of suffering, the truth of the cessation of suffering, and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering. Is that there's a cause and effect relationship between these. That the um, um, the the truth of suffering is the effect. The truth of the cause of suffering is the cause. So there's a cause and effect relationship between the first two noble truths. Then the truth of the... Um, Cessation of suffering is the effect and the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering is the cause. So there's cause and effect relationships going on here. So the truth of suffering, the truth of um, unsatisfactoriness, the truth of stress, the cause of that is said to be craving, wanting, Wanting basically things to be other than they are. And I'll go through this in, in much more detail. I'm t- kind of just trying to give the big picture here right now. The truth of the cessation of suffering is that it's possible to come to an end of that. That's what the Buddha discovered that night. That it it's possible to completely be freed from this craving, this suffering. And that there is an actual path. It's not a random event. It can, it can happen out of our own action. That we can take action to do this. So this, we can kind of think about these four truths in kind of a, a medical model. Um, the, the, the Buddha um, pointed out the illness, that it is suffering the uh, cause of the illness of craving and well, the prognosis. You know, So you've got this illness, can it be cured? Yes, he says it can be cured. And what's the prescription? The path, the eightfold path, the noble eightfold path. That is the fourth noble truth, the noble eightfold path. So... There's another aspect to this um these four truths that is described in this first teaching that the Buddha offered to these five ascetics and that is that these four truths are not simply truths to be you know believed it's not that kind of truth it's not saying you know this is true you should believe this and then you'll be okay he's saying you know these are truths that need to be acted on. So we need to do something with these truths. The noble truth of suffering he said should be understood. We need to understand our suffering. The noble truth of the cause of suffering he said we should let go of this cause of suffering. In understanding cause and effect. If there's something that's causing, if A is causing B, if you can get A out of the picture, B is not going to happen. So if, if there's the direct causal relationship between A and B, if the craving is causing the suffering, then if we can let go of that craving, our suffering will Stop. So, letting go is the action associated with the second noble truth. The third noble truth is the cessation of suffering. And he said, this is meant to be realized. It's meant to be experienced. The fourth noble truth, the truth of the path leading to the cessation of suffering, he said, is meant to be developed. It's meant to be cultivated. So this... It's like a, the, the prescription, you know, the, the, um, the, the medical model, you know. The, the doctor comes and, and um, says, yep, you've got this illness of suffering and here's the cause, you know. Craving is, is the cause of the, of the suffering. But it's possible to end it. So here's my prescription, you know. Right view, right thought, right intention, right speech, right action, right livelihood, Right effort, right mindfulness, right concentration. Here's your prescription. So the Buddha doesn't um, make freedom happen for us. He can't end our suffering. He gives us the prescription. And then we have to do it. We have to go fill the prescription. So we need to cultivate this path ourselves. Now there's an interesting, I think, feedback loop that happens here. You know the, um, the connection between the first two, so the, the second noble truth, the truth of the cause of suffering, is the cause of the first. The first noble truth the, the truth of suffering. The um, fourth noble truth, the truth of the uh, path leading to the cessation of suffering, is the cause of the third noble truth, the cessation of suffering. So at this point they kind of seem a little disjointed But the fourth noble truth, the cultivating of the path, that is what allows us to take the actions that are stated for the first two noble truths. By cultivating the path, we can begin to understand suffering. By cultivating the path, we begin to let go of the cause of suffering. And those two, as we cultivate the path, And realize the cause of suffering, we move into places and times where we actually experience the cessation of suffering. So it's that fourth noble truth that's the engine here. It's the, it's the, it's the, um, the it's that's what we really engage in, that fourth noble truth. So, since, you know, he basically was saying, look, you know, another teaching that he gave uh, after he had been teaching for a while, he, um, he was standing in, in the forest and he was with a bunch of his followers and he picked up a handful of leaves and he said, so what do you think? Is this handful of leaves that I have more or less than the, the leaves that are on all the trees in the forest? You know, and it's like, well, is this a trick question? You know, (laughs) seems pretty easy, you know. Well, the leaves you have in your hand, they're they're less in number. And he says, and just so, what I know is vast, and what I teach is as, as these leaves that I hold in my hand. And why don't I teach you everything that I know? Because it's not useful for finding freedom from suffering. So he really was focused on this illness of ours, this question of suffering. He's like, this is, this is what we need to keep our eye on, you know, this question of suffering. So all of his teachings, all of his teachings fit into this framework of the Four Noble Truths. Everything that he teaches is pointing us in this direction: of understand suffering, let go of its cause, cultivate the path, realize the re- release from suffering. So, if you're like a Mouse, you know this is uh, this is good news. You know, it's possible, it's possible to find a um, a way to be in this world where we do not suffer. And so, you know, this whole teaching, the whole teaching around this question of suffering, the term, Pali term, dukkha, it kind of makes sense to start there. Let's, Let's talk about dukkha. Let's understand what he meant when he said it's possible to completely end this dukkha. So this term, actually, maybe I should just stop there and see are there any questions about what I've said so far? Any, any, anybody want to comment or say anything about what I've said so far? No. Okay. Oh, go ahead. Yeah. There's a there's a mic there.
1: I guess it's just a kind of a logistic question in a way that that are these tra- verbatim translations of what he actually said or you know the, you know the new testament these they
0: were written like 100 years ago. So, so on and so how authentic are they so you know this is a great question um the um the original teachings um were given orally and there was no writing at that point um but there was a very strong Understanding of the importance of what he was teaching. And so there was an oral transmission that happened. There were people that dedicated their lives to memorizing what the Buddha said. And um, there was one person, an attendant, uh, his attendant Ananda, who had a very great facility of memory. And he is... We, we have to give thanks to Ananda because of his memory... Um, he 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 basically asked the Buddha. You know, when the Buddha um, when the Buddha asked him to be his attendant, he said, "Well, I have a, a, a request to ask you." And he said, "Any time you're away and you give a teaching, when you come back, give me that teaching." And so he kind of was a, a one-person repository, in a way, for all of the Buddha's teachings. And after the Buddha died, he attended the um, um, a kind of a council where everybody got together, and he recited everything that he remembered. And that became the beginnings of the, the Pali Canon that has come down to us. Now, you know, the way we think about this... Um, You know, oral memory, oral transmission is not very reliable, but actually, the way they did it, um, with a lot of checks and balances, a lot of repetition in the teachings, a lot of repetition in the in the words that were spoken, um, was was actually there was writing that was beginning to be around, I guess, but they were you know using it for you know. Receipts and things like that. So small things, um, and it was it was not very reliable. Those things could get lost. They you know, they faded. They you know. So writing was not very reliable. This memorization was very reliable, and uh, you know, if you don't believe actually that we have this capacity, there are monks in Burma right now who have memorized the entire Pali canon and they repeat it back. You know, so that. Uh, we even have this capacity now. We have this capacity to do this memorization. So it is um, definitely there. There can be some some changes over time in the in the um, transmission orally. It was written down, I think, about 500 years after the Buddha. Uh, so it's, it was written down about 2,000 years ago. Um, there's you know, in, interesting to me at least, I'm t- taking a course where we're studying some Chinese translations of similar suttas. And the, the apparently the Pali translations that, we're, that we read in this tradition and these Chinese translations both came from a si- the same source. And there are very, very few differences in these two. And the, so, you know, the translations that, that happened... From this text, from in one direction they took, you know, they took one direction and went to Chinese, and another direction and went to Pali, and uh, one man, one monk is kind of t- undertaking the project of comparing the two. There's really, really few differences, so it seems relatively reliable to me. Um, so that was a little bit of a long answer to your to your question. Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh-huh. and and use the mic. Could you pass the mic back?
1: I wondering about the, the kind of conversion, it seemed, the Buddha had, when he had this um, insight into the cause of suffering. Uh, I'm wondering if it was kind of like, instantaneously
0: getting rid of attachment, sort of, at that moment. I think that's the understanding, that in, that in the moment, I mean, he had done a lot of work. Already, I mean, you know, he had done a lot of concentration practice, and in doing concentration practice, there's a lot you have to let go of. You know, if you if you cultivate your mind to the degree he had cultivated it, there's a lot you've already let go of—a lot of sense pleasure, a lot of, um, you know, the normal kinds of wantings that we have in our daily life. A lot of that had been let go of already. So, you know, from that standpoint, it's kind of a gradual. Um, a a gradual process. Um, That night that he kind of understood into um, how the whole thing works, I mean, basically, I think he he felt like he understood how does craving cause suffering? And through that understanding of how craving causes suffering, a deep understanding of that, as you see that operating in your own experience, the mind, in seeing that, kind of goes, Oh... The mind itself is doing this to itself. You know, as the mind gets this education, it, it sees, oh, you know, this is, this is what's happening here. The, 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 the processes at work in the mind are creating the, their own suffering. And so in seeing that, there's a kind of something that happens in our mind that it just basically says, I don't think that's necessary anymore it falls away. So it takes a deep penetrating seeing into that and we'll, we'll talk about more about what it was actually that he, he saw at least as far as I understand it. <laughs> anything else so dukkha the term dukkha uh, usually this is the term that's translated as suffering this is, this is what the Buddha was you know, looking f- for an answer to. What is this dukkha? How is it possible? Is it possible to be free of this dukkha? So it's usually translated in suffering, but the, it's broader in meaning than suffering. The Pali term itself, dukkha, I know many of you have heard me say this already in past, but the, the term itself has two parts to it. Du- which basically means bad. And ka, which one of the understandings of that term is that it is the center in a wheel where the axle goes through. And so, you know, if you have a bad axle hole in your wheel, you know, it might be that the axle hole is slightly too small. And the axle going through it sticks and so there's a lot of resistance in the ride you know it, it rolls but there's resistance and it's like you have to push it a little bit hard to get it to go or maybe that axle hole is a little too big it's too loose and so the ride's a little wobbly you know and you have to be really careful not to go over too many bumps so the wheel's going to fall off entirely or perhaps it's slightly, slightly off center So that the ride is just a little bit of a thunk, you know, every time the wheel goes around, it's a little bit of a thunk, a thunk. So the ride is not smooth. So these connotations, I think, these images give more of a sense of what he meant by dukkha. You know, it's this feeling of offness, you know, the ride is not smooth. It doesn't have to be. I mean our term suffering I think we often um give a lot more weight to, you know, it seems like a big thing, you know, suffering. One teacher Steve Armstrong went to went to one retreat and his first retreat, I think he tells the story about his first retreat. I may be getting it slightly wrong, so apologies to Steve Armstrong if I'm getting this slightly wrong. But he um, he was on this retreat and he, he remembers sitting there listening to them talk about suffering. And he's sitting there, his body hurts and he's miserable and he's frustrated and, and he's annoyed and uh, he had' in, you know he thought he was going off to some spa thing when he stumbled into his first retreat, and you know he didn 't have any clue what he was getting into, and he sat in the back kind of you know what 's going on up there and 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 they were talking about suffering and he 's like well i don 't have any of that so you know the term itself we misunderstand, so you know thinking of it in terms of this axle hole that 's not quite right it 's not a good it gives us more of a sense of what happens you know any resistance you feel any sense of "Mm, things aren't as smooth as they could be that's dukkha the buddha had a number of um, definitions i'll read you this he said this is the noble truth of suffering birth is suffering Aging is suffering. Sickness is suffering. Death is suffering. Sorrow, lamentation, pain, grief, and despair are suffering. Association with the loathed is suffering. Dissociation from the loved is suffering. Not to get what one wants is suffering. In short, the five aggregates affected by clinging are suffering. Now that last sentence, don't ask me about that just yet. We'll get into the five aggregates Maybe a few weeks from now. <laughs> so, you know, the, the Buddha just kind of laid it out there, you know. We suffer We suffer basically all through our lives. Now, this doesn't mean that we're always feeling unpleasantness. But the Buddha... So there's this, this definition, one of the definitions of dukkha is in terms of... Um, You know, how we respond or react to our experience. That this is really the dukkha the Buddha is talking about in the First Noble Truth. That craving causes dukkha. So the kind of dukkha that this First Noble Truth is referring to is the kind of dukkha where it's basically wanting something wanting something that we don't have wanting to get rid of something that we have that we don't like wanting not to die wanting not to get sick wanting not to be in the body that we're in that's getting uncomfortable so this wanting or perhaps wanting to look more, more beautiful or wanting to have a new car or all of this wanting so that 's moving a little bit into the into the second noble truth, so I want to make a distinction here between physical pain and dukkha. The Buddha did talk about pain being dukkha in that paragraph that I read yet the um, there's also uh, teachings in other places where it where the Buddha clearly says that Even he experiences physical pain. So that in being fully enlightened, in being fully free from the suffering the Buddha is talking about, doesn't mean that our body is not going to experience unpleasant sensation. So this unpleasantness of physical pain is not what is meant by dukkha. What is meant is reactivity, Experience. So um, when we have physical pain, you know, you fall down, you bruise your knee, or uh, you get in a car accident and you have massive injuries, you know, from the small to the large, if there's physical pain, there is almost always reactivity to that physical pain. We don't like it, we don't want it, we tighten around it, we, um, we resist it it actually kind of begins to create a feedback loop. There's an aversion to that physical pain. And it creates a kind of a feedback loop with that p- unpleasant experience that it's a positive feedback loop, so it makes things worse. You know, it, uh, it, it's like it spirals out of control. So we have, um, you know, a, a, like at one point I had a frozen shoulder and, um, you know, I was, I was really just noticing as much as I could just the, the painfulness of the frozen shoulder. And yet the whole body felt inflamed. The whole body felt like it was, um, you know, responding somehow to the injury of my shoulder. And I kind of thought, well, there must be some chemical going through the body that's, you know, triggering inflammation everywhere. That's what I thought. But at some point, in just the observing of the experience of the physical pain and this kind of bodily reactivity, at some point there was something in the mind that just for a second let go. Let go of resisting. And the, the shoulder pain remained, but the entire... Kind of feeling of irritation throughout the whole body disappeared like that. It vanished. And so I realized that there was a mental, because it it, it had clearly been a mental release. There had been a little bit of resistance that had let go of. And I saw so clearly in that instance how much of a feedback loop there is between physical pain and mental reactivity. It can be very subtle. Very, very, very deep and very subtle that we have this kind of reactivity. And actually in my experience in meditation I've seen that the vast majority of what I call physical pain is actually mental reactivity. That when the mind can actually settle in and just be present for unpleasant sensation there's burning, there's stabbing, there's twisting, there's pulling there's pressure, there's heat but there's no reactivity to it and while it's experienced as unpleasant, it's not what I would call pain. It has a different quality to it. So this, this is what I can experience or have experienced in, in states of fairly deep concentration in meditation. So I know the possibility, or I see through that experience, that much of what I call pain is mental. So that's the physical side. And then there's the mental reactivity, you know, we react to our physical experience. That's a lot of what we react to. You know, we see things we don't like. We kind of pull back. We get irritated, annoyed by having to look at things we don't like. We we um, we get um, angry at at uh, hearing things that we disagree with. So there's you know there's uh, this mental reactivity that goes on to a lot of you know sense impingement. And then there's mental reactivity that goes on to our mental stuff. You know, we get angry at somebody, and then we get frustrated at ourselves for being angry, and then we get sad because we're frustrated, and and then we feel hopeless because we're sad, and then we get depressed because we're hopeless, and it just feeds on itself. So this mental reactivity, it is the mental component that is where this dukkha lies. Now this is really actually good news. If it were in the physical world, if we had no hope of, of um, you know, we, we don't have much control over how the, the environment impacts us. And if it were the impingement of the env- environment that caused our suffering, wouldn't be much of a hope. But it is, the reaction in our minds to the impingement of the environment that causes our suffering. And because it's reactivity in the mind, there is a possibility of altering how the mind functions. Now that may seem like a a tall order to alter how our mind reacts to things because it often seems, and it is often, kind of below our conscious awareness how we react. But through mindfulness through this cultivation of the Eightfold Path, through wise effort, wise mindfulness, wise concentration. And even in daily life we can explore, be mindful of how we're reacting to things. And as we explore that, as we um, investigate it, it's like the horizon of the subconscious begins to lower. And we start to be able to see this reactivity. And we see that there's some choices involved. And with seeing those choices, we can begin to choose to head in a different direction. So this is possible. It is possible to change our reactivity to our environment. It's possible, possible to change our reactivity to our own mind states as well. Well I'm gonna stop there and see if there's more. I have way more to say about dukkha.
1: <laughs> Let's just see what
2: so um, I, I never thought of this until so you were talking about duca this morning, but basically the suffering or is is a bad bearing and uh, what we need to do is grease it
0: <laughs> yeah in a way you could look at it that way the mindfulness is the grease yes. <laughs> Well, the mindfulness is the, is the grease that allows us to see how that bad bearing works and, and it may be that the bearing needs to be replaced you yes. know. <laughs>
2: I don't know what the uh, uh, analogy for that is <laughs> There,
0: we'll get to that in the eightfold path. Okay.
2: <laughs> As you may recall, one of my particular reactivities that I've described is is from um, is is uh, yelling at other drivers on the freeway who do things I don't like. I haven't been doing that lately. It's good. But I can't tell for sure inside if it's how much I enjoy driving my new car versus (laughs) (laughs) versus my practice. Uh huh. Well, (laughs) um. and 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 I'm saying this in a rather humorous way, but I'm also thinking about it in a more serious way, which, in my past experience, there were certain teachings I before I encountered anything about Buddhism that suggested that, um, you know, doing what you like or love in some way is what brings happiness. And now with some acquaintance with Buddhist practice, it's not craving that new car, not craving this, that, or the other thing. And I'm still, I'm still teetering on the fence.
0: Well, so, you know, this is, it's great for that you noticed, you know, there's this, these two things that happened. You're no longer quite so reactive to the drivers. You've also noticed the conditions are changed. You know, there's a new car here, so, you know, there's different conditions. So it's, it's hard to tease out sometimes. Well, okay, you know, having understood, it's helpful to not act out but to, to just be, um, you know, noticing what's happening. Um, there may be some of that in there, and there may well be also the sense of enjoyment that is uh, kind of um, more interesting to you than what the other drivers are doing. So, you know, exploring that, it would be interesting. You know, the, the, there's always an opportunity to learn from whatever situation we're in. So, you know, can you, um, you know, and this actually kind of points down to the, um, you know, there's two ways to come at things. You know, we can come at suffering through meeting the suffering, looking at the suffering. And we can come at things, you know, if that suffering is overwhelming, we can come at things by turning our attention to some other condition, like metta, or, you know, some more uh, wholesome, experience and in your case you know the car is providing perhaps a more pleasant environment which you know part of what might happen is that that more pleasant environment contributes to a lessening of reactivity so you know there's all kinds of ways things interplay here and it's just it's really worth just exploring them Um, you know in terms of um, do what you love and that brings happiness there is some truth to that and yet we can't always do what we love. And yet we can still be happy. So, you know, that's, I think, that, that where the, that, that teaching is, is a little limited. You know, it is true that if we can do what we love, but if we're clinging to what we love, you know, it's like, I have to do this. If I don't get to do this, then, you know, then I'm going to be miserable. Then that's suffering. You know, then that, that itself is suffering. So, um, it's the clinging it's the craving that is really the kind of root here so keep looking keep keep exploring and and you know you may notice um, 6 months from now you know the joy of a new car dies that down a little bit then <laughs> then you can see <laughs>
2: how far can we push the bad bearing
1: <laughs> <laughs> the things that I read that talk about uh, disappearance, they don't use that word, but I was, as you were talking, I was thinking...
0: Is that that on? I'm not sure it's on. Let's see if... Okay, hold it up a little closer. Yeah.
1: It just seems that if I gave up... Aging is very helpful in in the Buddha practice because things are removed, and abilities are removed, and a lot of things. So I have have a boost on that. (laughs) you got an advantage. (laughs) I think that that is really what is happening, is that there is some letting go of uh, wanting things a particular way, the right color, the right time, the right model, all of those things uh, are softened, and so in a way, there's a little bit of disappearing happening. And uh,
0: Dis- disappearing of?
1: Disappearing of uh, certainty or firmness or what's the right way? Uh huh. That's probably uh-huh. one of the biggest things that's happening to me is um, what's skillful as you gave me that word, I love that, rather than right or wrong. And so there is an adventure in a way with it, because it's opened up so much for me. that it's also, I've let go a lot.
0: Yes. So it is a type
1: of disappearing.
0: That There's the disappearing of, um, you know, the need to have things be a certain way. You know, and, and, you know, the, the actually the noticing the disappearing, as you put it, you know, it's kind of, the, the word the Buddha used, um, nirodha, cessation. Mm. Um, and there's a lot in the Buddha's teaching about the absence of, that that's an important thing to recognize, you know, that you, we often don't notice when things are absent, you know, we're, we're more focused on what things are here. But the Buddha actually pointed us to recognize when is greed absent, when is aversion absent, when is delusion absent? And so the and then when is craving absent? If we can begin to recognize that and it manifests in, in ways that are kind of quiet at times, you know it manifests perhaps in a sense of ease or peacefulness or relaxation, um, you know that that we can just kind of take for granted sometimes. So, you know, one of the ways, and I know you've heard me talk about this, and looking at the habitual ways we suffer, you know, one of the most skillful things to do around the habitual ways we suffer, the ones that really seem like me, you know, I am miserable. I am the one that gets angry all the time. I'm the one who yells at people on the freeway all the time. <laughs> no, the ones that are really habitual... Um, notice when they're present. You know, it's helpful to notice when they're present. Be mindful of when they're present. It's clearly helpful to be mindful. That's that grease. We're greasing the bearing. You know, you know, noticing how that bearing is off. Sometimes we may, in that mindfulness, what we may have to do is notice when we're caught versus when we're not caught by that thing. You know, there, there are times when, you know, a pattern of... Um, Anger is present or some kind of frustration is present. And it's, you know, oh, there's that anger. Look at that, you know. Isn't that interesting? And then there's the, oh, there's that anger. And oh, I hate that anger. I wish, oh, I wish it would go away, you know. So there's a distinction between those two. So noticing that distinction, because one of them, the, the anger that's like, oh, isn't that interesting, is absent the reactivity to that anger, and then there is the noticing the absence of anger altogether. So notice, you know, if you, can, if you can, especially with habitual patterns, habitual things, notice when they're not present, not operating. That's actually one of the more powerful practices that we can do. Because it begins to poke holes in our belief that it's always there. Um, so noticing the absence, noticing the disappearance, as you put it, is really, really powerful. So it's 11.01, so we'll continue talking about Dukkha next week.